0: And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. You know what is the nature and strategy of Satan? I I don't like talking about Satan, but I think it is always helpful to understand the enemy and his strategy. We live in a very uh, broken, evil world. There's evil everywhere, and what does Satan have to do with it? And how can we understand what his strategy is for destruction? And I my guest today is Jay Warner Wallace. And he can be found at coldcasechristianity.com. dot com. He's a best selling author and an amazing contributor to Faith Radio. Jim, welcome.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This yeah. is—I think you're right. This is one of those. I think, and just broadly, the idea that a loving God would ever allow any of us to go to hell—that that has been—or just the idea that hell might exist as as you know eternal conscious torment or whatever it is that. I hear this objection a lot from people. I think it's just, um, and so it's interesting that so many people uh, may not even believe in um, things like angels and demons and the spiritual realm. Yet at the same time, they they will accept other spiritual, uh, uh, immaterial truths like ghosts. You know, here we are coming up on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see, you'll see people who will accept some form of extra natural beings. But when it comes to the biblical you know, terms and the biblical um, uh, notions that are described in Scripture, especially related to hell, I think you'll see people kind of pause and think, I oh, can't be true. Loving God wouldn't do that.
0: Yeah, a conversation last week regarding a person grew up in an evangelical church, uh, mm-hmm. knows and loves the Lord, but as they become an older adult, they're starting to think and rethink the whole idea. And the conclusion was, nah, there is no hell. And I always wonder how they get to that place.
2: Well, I mean, I think that you can you can see how we, we, we kind of posit that God is all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful. The loving part is what everyone would be more than happy to embrace that, right? I mean, m- most people, if they think about God, they, they would – the one attribute of God they would all rush to, I think, and and want to think of him as is loving. But he loves – it loves us just the way we are, you know, that he – and I think that's one of the problems is that you when you see the nature of what is love, we use that word so quickly – and without really defining what that means. And if you're a parent, you know that that you have to balance these two attributes of God. And this is even if I'm not a Christian, I would know this, that, that, that there, there are two realities of the universe. There's truth, you know, justice, what is what is right, and then there is mercy, you know, grace, you know, what is loving. And trying to balance those two is incredibly important and and so so if there's a loving god he holds those two in perfect balance but without justice there is no love because then you'd say well then that the murderer gets the same the same benefit as the one who is murdered you now you have to have some justice in order to love the victim you cannot bless the the, the victimizer so so you have to hold these two things in in balance you know the, the love without justice is just an empty platitude it's just a word we use but if you know you have kids, you probably have experienced this thing called tough love where you have mm-hmm. had to to leverage something for the good of your child that feels at the time pretty harsh. But you know it's – you cannot reward bad behavior. And there I think is the issue. What do we do if there's a God? How is it that he rewards us? And how is it that we get what we, what we deserve? It's not it's – not, that's, that's the other notion is we have a tendency to think that God is good and loving – but we've redefined good and loving. We think that we're also good and loving. But the reality of course is that we are very seldom um as good as we think we are.
0: Mhm. Jim, let's start with defining the word Satan. Tell me what it means.
2: Well, and you see this, right? You see this in the Old and New Testament, you see that that you know, we have to kind of think about how it's defined in the Greek uh, that we use that's translated for Satan comes from a Greek word that means uh, adversary, and that makes sense, right? Because if God is our, our – if Jesus is um, our, 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 our high priest, the one who – our advocate, then it makes sense that the opposite of that would be our adversary. They Also, the word for for devil that you see in the New Testament is from a Greek word, diabolos, which means uh, false accuser or slanderer. So all the things you would would expect from God, he's just the opposite. He's our adversary instead of uh, advocating for us, instead of standing in our, our, our place as the high priest who, who speaks well of us, he does just the opposite. He's our adversary who speaks falsely of us. He lies to us. He is the father of, he's described as the father of lies for a reason. Um, and so that, that's, that, that, once you recognize the nature of Satan, it's a little easier to kind of spot his activity in your world. Right? Because you know when you, you're you up against something that seems adversarial or you're up against something that seems to be lying to you, you're probably up against the forces of darkness. Now here's the thing that I think is a problem though for us. Right, we, we live in a world, you and I, that's so modern, so technologically advanced that we have a tendency to – we can believe a lot of things about Scripture. But a lot of us believe most of Scripture except when it comes to the idea that there's a, an evil being at work. In the world, in the universe, um, to defeat us, to to try to defeat us. And we can accept even those who accept that God exists struggle sometimes accepting the idea that Satan exists. Even you said when you started this segment that it's like not something we t- often talk about is Satan. Well, why is that? Is it because we think it's silly? Is it because we we imagine him in the way that the culture? Has depicted him, and it's almost always a childlike, like you know. I was looking, you know, look at all the Halloween costumes that are available right now. You can get devil costumes, and they mm-hmm. look ridiculous, right? Right. Because that's the way we typically, and it's almost like a joke, like we see it as kind of funny. We don't look at it as as seriously as Scripture appears to look at it, because Scripture really describes this uh, this being as being the the prince of darkness, who uh, is the father of all lies. And uh, wants just the, he's our adversary who speaks falsely to us in both our thoughts, in both our actions. Um, and uh, it's really the reason why, I mean, how many times have you ever done something? My wife and I, we do a lot of ministry events. And if we're gonna get ready to do something for God, that week before we get ready to go is going to be attacked. I mean, we're going <laughs> to something, this happens every time we get ready to do something for God. Where's that coming from? Well, it's because there are—this is a spiritual battle, as Paul talks about, of unseen forces in wow. the world. And every time you're aligned to do something good for the kingdom, there are an entire body of, of unseen forces that are trying to keep you from doing that. Mm-hmm. So, But we often play that down. You know, we don't take it seriously.
0: Yeah. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. You can learn more about him at coldcasechristianity.com. When you talk about Halloween costumes and a lot of devil costumes, I'm sure mm-hmm. the enemy— loves the idea that we're going to make a cartoonish character out of him, one that you can uh, laugh at and ignore.
2: Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons why I I very seldom, you know, I do a lot of visual presentations on the stage at different conferences and, and things like that, and I never use illustrations or images that are the kinds of images that might seem childlike about any historic event in scripture. So if we're talking about the noah or we're talking i'm not going to use images that look like kids images because i think the culture already thinks that we we are foolish to believe this silliness anyway and i think that gets amplified when you see cartoonish figures of the devil or cartoonish figures of anything in scripture like you're teaching it on a flannel board this is not a flannel board no. uh, you know fairy tale we're teaching our kids this is according to scripture very smart people paul was a very smart and look read paul's writings I mean clearly smart people understood the role that Satan plays in the world and the way he comes after us right because he comes after us with a very specific strategy you, you, I've talked about it before with you you know the three reasons why anyone commits a murder are the same three reasons why anyone you know um, fails in any way commits any sin lies whatever it is you're doing that you shouldn't be doing it's only driven by three impulses. They're described in First John two, but they are the strategies of, of Satan. You know, those those three areas, those three um, good things that we desire that, that Satan perverts and uses them toward evil. You know, it's that idea of sex, money, and power, the pursuit of power. Those are the three things and you'll see it over and over again. Even in the way that Jesus is tempted by Satan in the gospels. He you know Satan tries to leverage those three things. That's helpful for us to know. Because if you thought you knew where the adversary was coming from, you might be better prepared to stop him. And those are the three ways he's going to attack us. So once you know that, doesn't mean. By the way, I, I, even though I know that, I still can't stop it. Right? There's like Paul says in Romans seven. You know, I continue to do the things I shouldn't do, the things I know I should do. I don't do. You know, I'm just what I'm, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. You know. Well, that's all of us. And but that's what. Uh, satan leverages as he attacks those three areas that could be used toward good sex money power can be leveraged for good but they also can be leveraged by satan for bad
0: mm-hmm. once you are in the family of god uh, it seems that the three biggest enemies you have in your life are the world the flesh and the devil uh jim do we have a tendency of putting too much emphasis on the devil i mean we can we can, by our own flesh, we can make plenty of mistakes and, and sins, and the world will lead us into certain places. But it seems that the tendency is to blame the devil.
2: Well, and I think you're right, and I think that you know. So, why would a good God allow us to be the the way we are? There one way to kind of navigate that is to say, well, no, I'm a good person, but Satan attacks me and makes me do things I wouldn't otherwise do. The problem, of course, is that that's just our innate nature. We have a sin nature. This is what Scripture teaches. This is why people that you look at, you think, well, look at all the good that person has done, can also do, you'd be shocked to find out some evil thing that person has done. You'd think, how can you be both people, both evil and good? Well, that's the duplicit nature of humans. And God, I think, created us this way because he wanted people who had the capacity to love, but that requires that dangerous free agency that allows some of us, all of us, to also pursue our selfishness. Because if he could have created us in such a way that we would never sin, but then we would never know what it is to choose anything freely, including to choose to love freely, which is the only way you can love. So he creates a world that has the capacity for love, but also the capacity for hate. Gives us an instruction book to, to teach us how to do one rather than the other. Many of us ignore the, the instruction book. But the point is he's created a world in which the best things we want, the love, the admiration, the community, all the things that we revere, those are all possible. But because we have free agency, we often will choose against those things. But that's just the nature of free agency. You don't want a world, by the way, where there's no free agency, but also no, uh, no sin, that's a world in which there's no real love and you wouldn't want to live in that kind of world.
0: Mm-hmm. Jim, when I hear people uh, use words carelessly like hell and damned, I always shudder because I think that's probably what Satan would like for us to do is to use those words so carelessly that they don't mean anything.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that the whole idea uh, uh, this whole notion, we hear the objections all the time. Why would a good God send people to hell? Um, that's a, a very reasonable uh, objection, but I think we, we had, have not really defined hell very well for people. We have, they don't, I think most people don't have a biblical uh, definition in their head. And, and I think they also haven't thought about, well, how is it that God would punish someone in hell? And why would he um, – I think probably for the most part, everyone in their minds has somebody that they think is deserving of eternal separation from God. You know, mm-hmm. someone who's victimized somebody, I know the Dahmer, um, the thing on Netflix, this new show about Jeffrey Dahmer has become very popular. I'll bet most people would say, well, if there is punishment, for, if serial killers probably fit in that group. Um, so and it's about, it's, so I think we all have somebody, we would say, deserves separation I think the question is, well, who and what does that separation look like? And what's really going to happen to people who are separated from God? Those are the questions people have. We have to be ready to, to answer those.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. We're talking about the nature and strategy of Satan. Not a very um, happy topic, but we're going to dive into this some more with Jim. You can learn more about him at coldcasechristianity.com. I recommend you go check it out. We'll be right back. it's the end of the year, and you are absolutely amazing in your generosity. Thank you so much. If you've not made a gift to Faith Radio, we would love it. You can do that at myfaithradio.com. Thank you so much.
1: You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a Special Repeat Performance.
0: Every time I come back from break, I'm always happy that my guest is on the line, and I can always count on Jim Wallace uh, to be that guest. Jay Warner Wallace can be uh, found at coldcasechristianity.com. He's a best-selling author. I glad to have him on. Jim, as we talk about the way in which we sin, we accept a lie rather than the truth of God, maybe you would talk a little bit about the relationship between accepting a lie and committing a sin.
2: Yeah, I mean, think about it. It really is described pretty well in John chapter 8, and verses 43 to 45. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Now, that's really interesting to me, because it's clear that the very nature, like we talked about, this idea that devil, the word for devil, diabolos in the Greek means either slanderer or false accuser. So here we are, we see that Satan, and Jesus affirms this, is the father of deceit. He is the source of deceit. But if you look at it again, you'll notice that not only is um, that, that passage in John 8, is not only is he described as a, a liar, because he is. But he's also described as a murderer. So there's a sense, there's a relationship between Satan's lies and, and death and murder. And, and of course, we know from Scripture, uh, Scripture teaches us pretty clearly, that the wages of sin is death in Romans six twenty three, There's something, we are separated from God, spiritual death occurs because of our sin nature. And that, that's and that makes sense, right? Because we are told um, that this is where it comes from. It comes from Satan. Satan is the father of lies, so so it, it, it is a father of sin. And not that not that that, that that we sin because of Satan, but that Satan that is his, his his predisposition that he wants to encourage us to join him in that. But we have a fallen nature. No one has ever sought after God, right? For all I fall short of God. All have sinned. All fall short of God. This is Romans 3.23. We know that nobody, if you think about it this way, if there's an an all-powerful God, he has the power to eliminate moral imperfection even within himself. So therefore, you're looking at an all-moral, an absolute, perfectly moral being. So just compare yourself to that. Any comparison to that, we suffer, right? We're not by, by comparison like that. We are fallen. So so this is, I think, why it's important for us to see the strategy. Like, what, where is it that Satan enters in to things that could be used for good and finds a way for uh, to encourage us to corrupt them? And that's when we get to those three motives, right? That's when we get to – and you see this. In Scripture, when, when Satan is described this way, you, you see how he, he does this, how he perverts this. He, what does he do with, 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 uh, with um, Jesus when, the, when he tempts him? Uh, it says in Matthew 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's, he's hungry. He has a physical need. This is often what happens. You know, if you think about our own physical needs, including sex, these are things that we God has designed us to have, like hunger. It's not bad by itself. It's how do you leverage that? When people start stealing, when people start uh, abusing this, this natural desire, that's when it becomes evil. So what does he do? The tempter comes to him. Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, tempting him based on his physical needs. So there's the first one. You see this, by the way, we talked about this before, 1 John 2. The second thing he does is um, he tempts him based on a personal gain. He tells him that, hey, if you um, – um, he tells him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and if they uh, they will lift you up in their hand and so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So here he's kind of appealing to the power issue, you know, an idea of personal gain. So you see this over and over again. You even see the power and glory. He says, "I will give all kinds of stuff to you." Uh, he says, uh, "Takes him to a very high mountain." Satan did and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all their splendor. I'm going to give all this to you. He's constantly coming at us from those areas of physical pleasure, mm. of of personal gain and power and glory. Those are the areas that we uh, all fail in. And if you think about it, if you've ever worked in an investigation, if you've ever worked a crime, there is no fourth category. There just isn't. I mean, if people say, well, a lot, people do things because they're crazy? Well, that's not a, a – we're talking about sane motivations. Even sane people do crazy things because they're motivated by sin. Well, those sins end up being in, in those three categories. So if you knew that and you're a pastor, for example, and you know the only way that Satan can attack you is through sex, money, and power – Well, then you just know I only need to guard myself in those three areas. There's not a fourth area I need to worry about, just those three areas. So you might say, well, okay, then I'm going to have a Billy Graham rule. I'm going to make sure I'm not alone or put myself in a position where I could ever be tempted sexually. I'm going to make sure that I have a cap on my spending. I'm going to make sure I have some some, uh, accountability so people can see how much I'm being paid so we're not overspending. And third, I'm going to make sure that I reign. This is the hardest one, and we talked about this before. It's hard to rein in the power thing because if you're leading as a pastor, let's say, you're in a position of power because you're the pastor. And then, of course, we're in a world in which everyone wants to be made into a celebrity so they can grow their ministry, grow their business, grow their – I'm an author. You can grow your awareness of who you are, so now you're struggling with the celebrity, which is an aspect of power. But you know those are the three ways you're going to be attacked. Well, you could find a way to guard yourself in those. This is true for all of us whether you're a pastor or not. Those are the only three ways you're going to stumble. That's the strategy of Satan. And if you are going to guard yourself, you simply have to guard yourself in those three ways. Mm. But I think the bigger issue for me, Bill, is that you that this it's, it's the way we tie in as 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 an atheist. I thought of Satan is just so redi- you could convince me sooner of God's existence than you could ever convince me of Satan's existence, right? I mean, to me this this notion, this cartoon character that that these Christians have invented, in some ways, just to, to, to push off their, their own blame for their own behavior, I would have said. Uh, that, to me, was ridiculous. I mean, but you can make a case for God's existence. I did that in a book called God's Crime Scene. But the case for Satan, that seems like a joke. I mean, there's no case for Satan, right? Mm-hmm. But, but it turns out there are good reasons, good reasons to believe that the existence of Satan is reasonable. I mean, this has been thought about for years and years. And people like C.S. Lewis have uh, have written about it, have talked about it, have have thought about it reasonably, like have kind of um, made a case over like several points for why uh, Satan is a reasonable uh, – uh, his, his existence is reasonable. And I think that's one of the things we have to be able to do for people is to help them see that the existence of Satan is actually philosophically reasonable, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So, Jim, when you talk about um... – jesus being tempted in the wilderness and i always am impressed that uh, jesus didn't lead with his feelings he led with what he what what with his thinking it is written that's where he started yeah okay because if you uh, talk about what you feel versus remind yourself of what you know i think you're in a better
2: place well that's that's absolutely true uh and i think that's sometimes where i don't I think Satan can confuse the way we think as well, but I do think that this is one of the it's much easier, I think, for me to get upset emotionally about something, and I have to think my way through it right you'll see something on the news and you find yourself either bummed out or angry well what are you what is what's happening there? Well, it's because you're having an emotive response. To something that happened in the news, I get that. That makes sense. But but it but it's I think it's easier. It's it's much easier to allow yourself to stumble when you rely on emotions alone. But I do think that Satan can also attack the way you think and can can cause because because let's face it, I sometimes want things selfishly and I can yeah. find a way to justify those rationally.
3: And
0: I would agree with you that he can affect the way you think. I was just kind of referring to Jesus's response where he yeah. he led with what he knew versus. What he felt, because, you know, 40 days without food and you talk about turning stones into bread, you know, hey, I feel pretty hungry. That sounds pretty good.
2: Yeah. You know, I think that's a really good point, though, too, is that he returns to what he knows from Scripture. Exactly. And that is, like, so—I mean, you can see the statistics that are out there and the surveys that have been done that really talk about what how differently people live if they are in God's Word X number of yeah. times a week.
0: Jim, let's pick this up on the other side of the break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. You can learn more about Jim at coldcasechristianity.com. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Join us for our Reading the Bible Together Advent study. Sign up at myfaithradio.com.
1: You are listening to an encore presentation of afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance.
3: Let's get it started. Jump in your car. what's for dinner? It's the afternoon show.
0: It is the afternoon. I'm so glad to have Jay Warner Wallace as my guest. He is a former cold case homicide detective and best-selling author. Learn more about Jim at ColdCaseChristianity.com, and I really encourage you to go there. He's got amazing articles and podcasts and videos, and it's all right there at ColdCaseChristianity.com. We're talking today about the nature and strategy of Satan. Always good to know how the enemy and the adversary works, so you can have a better understanding. Of how to live life. Jim says uh, money, sex, and power. That's the area that he targets. And those are the three. Um, does that apply equally to both genders,
2: Jim? I, I think it does. I think it just, it just looks different. So, so for example, often if I say, well, money, sex, or power, well, in the, in the sex category, sometimes for, for men, it maybe is less relationship-driven and maybe more sex-driven, mm-hmm. but for, for I think for both sides, it can be either what I, it's, a, it's a range from either relationships that I ought not explore or physical contact that I ought not explore. It's going to be somewhere in that spectrum and it'll probably be different for each person. Forget about sex for a minute. It's just different for everybody. It's regardless of whether you're a male or a female. You Going to be somewhere, but relationships I consider to be like I work a lot of murders where it is a love triangle, right? right. It may, maybe it's not like you could say, well, it's a sex triangle. No, it's actually maybe just a, a deep relationship triangle. But that's really the motive behind the murder. But let me let me just try something here, and I'm gonna, I'm going to take a stretch with you if you'll let me do sure. it. I want to make a, just a really brief synopsis of C.S. Lewis's argument for the existence of Satan because it talks about his strategies. Okay. And it's it's going to be not going to be great because, let's face it, Lewis takes time to unpack this. I'm just going to try to give it to you here on the radio really quick. Okay. Okay. Well, take your time. We've got time. Okay. So here's basically the argument I mean, we know that evil exists. And that really is what starts the whole adventure for us. We're trying to figure out how do we explain. evil. I mean it does beg for an explanation, right? We we see bad things happening in the world. If there is a good God, why would this kind of thing happen? And it seems that the Lewis posits, and I think this is good thinking, that there are only two possibilities. The first possibility is is that there is a good power, right, that presides over the world. But the world itself is temporarily under the influence of a finite subordinate evil power. Now, that's the Christian worldview, right? Mm -hmm. A good God presiding over the world, and you have this finite evil power called the devil. The other option, though, is that good and evil powers, or what forces, however you want to call it, they exist in the world, and they're equal in strength, like a yin and yang, right? They're independent from, from one another, and they're co-eternal. So, in other words, either one is subordinate to the other, or they're both co-equals, okay?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, here's what Lewis says. He says if there are two independent, equally strong, equally uh, eternal powers of good and evil, right? They're just like yin and yang, right? Well then one is probably going to assert that it is good and that the other is bad. And they're both gonna say that. Both gonna say, Well, I'm the good one, no, I'm the good one. Mm-hmm. And so you would need then a third, an outside standard that decides between the two that both claim to be good. Because Satan's gonna to claim to be good. And God of course is gonna to claim to be good. Well, there'd have to be a third if this if it was really two equal forces in the universe. But if that outside standard exists, it's actually supreme over the other two powers, and that would be the true god of the universe. In other words, that adjudicator between these two forces would stand on its own. It wouldn't be dependent on anything else. It would be the true god of the universe. You see where we're already now heading again, that evil has to be subordinate to the third. So if that outside – just bear with me – if the outside standard exists – it's actually the supreme, true God of the universe. Now, we know that evil – we talked about You and I just talked about it, how it's the perverted pursuit of those three things, right? Sex, money, and power. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. But these three objects of pursuit we know are actually good. We talked about that. They are perverted. Okay, now wait a minute. So you're saying they're good. That's right. It turns out they have to exist as good things. In other words – Evil requires the existence of good before it can actually exist as the perversion of this thing. So evil is the perversion of good. In other words, it's like when light shines into a room, the blocking of the light, good, produces a shadow. But there could be no shadow without the light. So there could be no evil without the light of goodness that shines down because evil is just the absence of the light. Mm Mm-hmm. So this means, once again, that evil cannot stand on its own. So finally, we know that the supreme objective standard in the universe, according to Lewis, it's standing on its own. It must, by necessity, be the good power, while the evil power must, by necessity, be the subordinate power. Mm -hmm. So that's his argument that, that we have to explain evil some way. There's only two ways to do it. We have two equal powers, one good, one evil, or two powers, one of which is subordinate to the other. And this idea that one would be subordinate to the other makes more sense given this argument, and that's why he thinks you can reason your way toward the existence of an evil being that's subordinate to God.
0: Mm-hmm. Jim, I'd love for you to talk about Satan's strategy with Eve in the garden.
2: Well, I mean, think about what, what he does uh, with Eve in the garden. I, I, and I think that sometimes we... we uh, Again, this is one of those reasons, one of, the, one of those ideas where I will never usually use imagery sure. that seems childlike when I'm presenting this kind of stuff in front of an audience because I feel like this is one of the stories that that people will go, "Oh, come on, the talking snake! You guys are so crazy!" <laughs> you know, but but it's this idea that you know, if there's a God of the universe that can create everything from nothing, the talking snake thing is not you know, that, I mean, there's, there are beings out there that are supernatural and have supernatural power. Mm -hmm. Then these kinds of things are at least within the realm of reasonable possibility. And so of course, what does he do? He says, you must not eat from, you know, she, he basically questions her. Did God really say this? By by the way, if you don't see that happening today, we've got an entire movement within Christianity right now that is challenging. Jesus very clear teaching on marriage on identity, on life, on sexuality, did God really, and one of the strategies is, well, either, well, Jesus never said that, did he? Jesus never said anything against this, did he? But what is that, it sounds like they're repeating that line from the garden, <laughs> where Satan is saying to Eve, you know, did, did, God didn't really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden, did he? Well, I think that's really a strategy we have to be aware of, Is is, is that this kind of of doubt in the face of what has, is obvious—that's what this really is. I mean, look, you, Eve heard him, heard God say it, yet Satan's still able to challenge something that that she knows from her own firsthand experience actually occurred. And this is what happens. We read through Scripture, those of us who call ourselves Christians, and then we start to have this doubt that, did God really say, well, look, you have the Bible right in front of you. Now like you couldn't go back and look to see what God says about this, but instead we let the question fester, because the reality of it is, is that Satan knows to question the things we want to do by our fallen nature anyway. Mm. So Satan knows what, what, Eve, what Eve really wants to do by her fallen nature I mean, you know, this is actually the fact by accepting the offer, she actually falls. But my point is, is that God, that Satan knows what it is that we want to do. And he just comes alongside that and says, yeah, that's OK to do. Come on, because God wouldn't really stop you from doing that. Right. I mean, you want to do it. It's going to be good. It's going to feel good. It's going to be It's going to be fun. God wouldn't really want to deny you that, would he? And so basically, he just works on our own desires first. And then when we act on those desires. He, he, he leverages us for evil.
0: Mm hmm. Jim Wallace is my guest. Jim, when I uh, read 2 Timothy 2, there's some of the most chilling verses uh, towards the, the very end where it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That doesn't give goosebumps. I don't know what does.
2: Yeah, which goes to show you that we cannot play it lightly. We cannot think, well, you know, Satan doesn't really ever take us captive. Well, clearly, Scripture says he does. Yeah. So, so I mean, we can't look at it and say, well, no, you know, it's just, it's all just me. I, No, we're not. It's like Paul says this, not just to Timothy. Paul says this in the letters, that we are in a battle. We are in a battle that exists in a realm that most people are not paying attention to. They're not seeing it. And and, that, and this is why we, and this is why God has, look, there's there's two things, that you know that Satan will be cast forever into eternity, into hell. Mm-hmm. And, and I think most people, if they accept that Satan exists, if there really was a Satan, they would want him to be thrown into hell. Yeah. Yet at the same time, they want to deny that anyone, here's the bigger challenge. So you're telling me that my grandmother, who never believed, but she's the sweetest lady you could ever meet, she's going to be thrown into hell with Satan. And there, I think, is the biggest challenge we face, is how do we navigate the existence of hell and reconcile it with our notions of a loving God? And that's where I think all of this eventually goes. It's not just that we talk about Satan and the strategies of Satan because we know he's going to work in those three areas. The real challenge, I think, then, is answering that objection. How, Why would a loving God throw uh, people into hell, send people to hell? Mm-hmm and that's really until we can answer that question for people we're we're never going to get to the satan issue
3: yeah
0: jim is is the language you just use is that problematic for people when you say god would throw someone into hell i mean don't don't we make choices that we don't want to be with god
2: so we well, end up yeah. away from him <laughs> Exactly. But that's the way it's always leveraged. It's always leveraged. You know, why would he send people to hell? Why would he throw people in hell? Why would he cast people to hell? Because it's like it's against their will. Like, these are good people. These are my my family members that I love. So I think there are uh, like three ways to respond to that that are super important for us. And one of them, what you just said, which is that, um, you know, people who never seek God, they they don't seek or want God in their lives. God's not going to then force you to spend eternity with him right Mm -hmm. now. You don't want to be with him. And so that would, you know, there's people I know who would say if there, it would be hell for me to be in the presence of a God, you know? So, so how, I think if, you, if there is a loving God, he is not going to force you into his presence when you have never wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it, is that we don't choose and we don't seek God. And, and, the, and the scripture tells us that none of us, for the most part, do. Um, and so the, the, they don't want to spend eternity That's only one part of the answer, I think. That's one aspect of the answer. Like every answer in front of a jury, it's always going to be cumulative. It's not just one thing. It's several things that point to the same inference, and the same thing is true here. So that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that we have to talk about what we mean by the word loving, because a loving God has got to be just. Right, or, mm-hmm. or 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 you know, it's just it's just like I said before, it's just an empty expression. I love you. If I saw my my son J- David, oh, I love you more than I could I could put into words, and the next time we I, and I've stopped signing with him, I see someone run out and shoot some kids in a schoolyard, and I stop that shooter and I say, I love you more than I can put in words. If I say the same thing to that guy that I just said to my son, my son's going to say, well, you know what, that doesn't really mean much anymore because you'll say that to anybody. <laughs> so so the truth, same is true here. Is if everyone is offered the same experience in the afterlife, then how loving or fair would it be, for example, for say like a Mother Teresa and for Hitler to experience the same afterlife? I mean most of us can think of somebody who should be punished, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were saying before, it's going to be a serial killer. It's going to be a child molester or a rapist. You've got some idea in your mind of somebody you think deserves punishment. So how loving would God be then to reward the criminal you're thinking about rather than punish them?
0: Yeah. Jim, what do you think about when Christians hear about the death of someone who was a bad person, and they have some little comment about, "Well, he's finally getting what he deserved"? Or what are your thoughts when you hear that?
2: Well, I think mean, most of us want to know why won't God punish evil, and what we will typically have to remember is that God ha- will not, hasn't punished the evil yet. But we, 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 are, we, we see everything in the terms of the 90 years in which we could ever seek justice on anything. I'll be here for 90 years, hopefully, and so those are the years in which we can find justice for things. But God has eternity to seek justice, and so, so it's that God will right every wrong. But he may not right every wrong in this short little blip called our temporal lives. Right. That's something he may do in eternity, which is why I think that a loving God, a loving God, without a, a loving God who is not just in the way he dispenses his love, is just a clown. And a, loving, a God who is just just but not loving is a dictator. So you have to have that perfect balance of, of both love and justice. And I think that's one of the ways we need to be able to respond to this. But also there's one more thing i got to say, is that there, there's good reason from Scripture to believe that there are levels and degrees of punishment that await us in the next life. Some people are going to be punished severely. Some will make – because the word of tor- torture is not in Scripture when describing hell. It's the word torment. Some may only experience the torment and the regret of being separated from God and and and, their, and from their other believers in their family. For eternity. Some others will be punished in a much more severe way. The same way we would say that some punishments for misdemeanors ought to be less than punishments for felonies. Well, God actually proposed that first in the book of Exodus. So you'll see that those punishments, God also thinks that punishment should be gradated. And you can make a case for um, the degrees of punishment in hell from Scripture. And that's one of the reasons why yeah your your grandmother might be separated from God because she never was interested in him mm-hmm. but he, she won't suffer the same fate as a serial killer,
0: yeah Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. we'll take a break we'll be right back with lots more.
1: listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance.
0: I'm back with Jay Warner Wallace. always recommend going to coldcasechristianity.com. He's written a number of books. His most recent one is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. I'm looking over his library of books that he's written. I think I have all of them in my library and i my ever glad I, I have. So uh, check out coldcasechristianity.com. We're talking about uh, the enemy today, Satan. and It's not a friendly conversation uh, to talk about Satan, but it's always good to understand his strategy and understand how uh, what his nature is and how he operates. You know, Jim, uh, people hate being lied to, yet they still want what they want. I mean, if you, you and I are on the street outside the Super Bowl and you're about to buy a $8,000 Super Bowl ticket, and I know that it's a counterfeit, and I'm going to watch you take $8,000 out of your pocket and hand it over to some guy, and he's going to hand you a ticket that you feel pretty convinced is a genuine ticket that's going to get you in. But I know otherwise, and I say nothing. How do you feel about me?
2: Yeah, it's a good point. It's that we are told, James talks about this in the book of James, uh, you know, we're told that, that it's not just that we actively engage in sin, but we don't even, we don't even stop and do anything when we could do something to prevent evil. And this is, I think, a challenge, right? Because we see this in law enforcement a lot, where somebody will step in, and you know, you you want to be you want to be smart, you want to be, but, but at the same time, we all have a sense that, and I see this a lot lately. It seems like I see uh, incidents in which good people do nothing, um, and we saw that, for example, during a lot of the the turmoil during the pandemic. Where you wonder why would we allow certain things to continue? At the same time, you also know that, that, that you know there certain people have better resources to be able to stop evil. But you're right. In that situation, um, you could easily step in and stop. But that just means that just opens it to me. It just opens up an entire new category of ways that I am not God. Of ways that I fall short of the standard set by God. Is that it's not just that I actively pursue evil, which I often do. We all do. It's that I often will not do something to stop evil. Mm-hmm. Like I could do a lot more, right? I mean, then you can start to get like you know, crazy in your mind about all the ways you could be active in your community to try to uh, to to seek justice, or you know, that you can go on and on, right? But but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that this is just it goes to show that that we there's so many ways we can sin. Most of us haven't even thought of all the different ways we are sinning.
0: Yeah. So you'd be mad at me. If I didn't step forward and say to you, hey, Jim, I, I know that's a counterfeit ticket, so don't give me your eight grand. But you also wouldn't want to hear, you'd want to hear from me that that was a counterfeit ticket, but you wouldn't want to hear my opinion about if you were having an affair. And I'd say you, you are committing a sin and you're rejecting God's truth.
2: Yeah, no, that's true. Well, I think I think a lot of us are, well, a couple of things. We don't even want to, this is a little one more step. You, you also think, well, yeah, would you want to tell somebody maybe who holds an errant worldview that's going to lead them away from the presence of God in eternity? If I don't stop that, I mean, talk about being sold a ticket
3: mm-hmm.
2: to get you into the Super Bowl. So many people in our world are being sold a worldview ticket that's going to separate, it's going to get them someplace, but it's not going to get them in front of God. So there's a sense in which I'm like, okay, you know, it's not just that we, we hate evil, but do we hate evil enough to want – like the gospel present – to speak the gospel is in some ways uh, – our, our, we, we need to be able to do that to prevent people from, from suffering a fate that we don't – if we don't do it, how are we going to feel about it later? This is one of the reasons why I think it's – it's I mean, how many times have you been to a, a family function? We've got Thanksgiving coming up. So, okay, so at Thanksgiving, you're probably going to be surrounded by people in your family who you love. But you don't feel like it's going to be comfortable for you to share the gospel with them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, hey, I don't want to tell you that ticket. It's I want you. You feel good about it right now, and and, and if I say nothing, you won't blame me later because you'll get into the Super Bowl and you'll realize you can't get in. You won't say, well, I wish <laughs> Jim would have told me. Mm-hmm. So so I. But this is one of those situations where a lot of us will just stay quiet. We won't say anything because we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to rock the family boat. But it turns out we're kind of like that person standing outside the Super Bowl who knows better who could stop you from spending that money could stop you from making that mistake. Mm -hmm. And it's an eternal mistake and we still don't do it.
0: Yeah. What about in family situations where maybe you're not treated respectfully for your views and family members are masters at deflecting and all of a sudden they've got you off course in, you know, in one sentence. And how do you get it back? I mean, that's the challenge sometimes.
2: Well, yeah, and I think sometimes we, we, we think we have to get it back. And we don't necessarily have to get it back. Okay, we have, we have to do is, is it's jury selection. Right? We always talk about there's some people that you pray and model Christ for because at this point they're not listening. They aren't interested. They're just going to find a way to throw it back. And so, yes, I mean, I've, I, for example, I do not say you should never preach the gospel or never share the gospel with those people. Of course you will. But I'm not going to make it my primary focus every time I see you because I've already shared that truth with you. And now I need to ask God to move you into a place where you'll hear it, because I can't make that happen. Only God makes that happen. So my dad, for example, I've shared the truth with him, but I know I cannot make him bend his knee to that truth. Mm -hmm. I have to ask God to do that. But it's not as though I never shared the truth with him. It's just now, what do I do? Do I continue to, to, every time I see him, this is the only thing we're going to talk about now until he passes. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think there's, there's, I'm going to model Christ for him, I'm going to be actively praying for him, that he will accept the things I've already discussed with him, because those things have already been talked about.
0: Mm -hmm. Do your family, have they watched any of your videos or read any of your books?
2: Well, you know how Jesus suffered in his own hometown <laughs> where nobody wanted to pay attention? To right. Him? I think most of us who are Christians know that's exactly what we're going to experience in our own family. So if that's you right now and you're listening to us and you're wondering why it is, that any strategy you might, might offer, I might give you three responses to whether or not hell exists. But those don't seem to work with your family whenever you try them. Well, that's not necessarily a bad response. It's, it's necessarily it's probably more that, that nobody – Nobody values the opinions of people they know really well like that, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it's because they've seen us make all the errors. Maybe it's because you're the youngest sibling, and I'm never going to listen to my younger sibling, or you're the son, right. and no one's going to listen to their son. You're not, you know, Or maybe it's because you're the dad who's been overbearing, and nobody wants to listen to you there either. There's all the family dynamics that come in that make it difficult. Uh, it's not You're no longer just giving a message that's clean without all of the history. Now you have all this baggage and history. You're also adding to the message. It makes it harder. So I just think we have to be patient, and that's why I think we have to trust God for some of these things. So look, when I was raising my kids, I always wanted them to have someone in their life who was a younger, cooler version but held my views. <laughs> so when I was in youth group, you know, mm-hmm. I was in my 40s. I, I had a friend who was in his early 30s, late 20s, he was much cooler, surfer guy, you know, he was much more appealing, but he held my views. And so when he was around, he would just repeat what I was thinking anyway, but they were far more likely to accept it from him than they were from me because he was not a family member and he was a younger, cooler version. Yeah. So I think that's important to surround your people you love, you need to hear this message from a lot of different sources, not necessarily just from you.
0: It mm-hmm. seems like a good idea would be to invite an outsider friend to your Thanksgiving dinner. And then, well,
2: or, or or sometimes you know what happens is you you share something or or it, and even that can be dicey because you're sharing it, you're inviting that person over. Oh, this is the only reason why you invited him over to, you know, <laughs> yeah. to, to ambush me from this side. So I mean, there's, it's like really, it has to be one of those things that kind of it kind of happens without the, you know you. It's it's the exact same thing that Jesus experienced. If he experienced it, we're going to experience it. Too. Right.
0: So maybe not a good idea to bring in the hired gun, right?
2: Yeah, especially when they see you doing it. Right, (laughs) right,
0: right. right. So, Jim, we just have a couple minutes left. Uh, What about how we best defend ourselves from this strategy of Satan?
2: Okay, so you know, uh, the first thing is be aware of what they are. It's always going to be sex, power, money. You know that. So then the question becomes, like, for example, when I was leading a church, I knew those are the three ways that, that every church leader is going to be. And you see this all the time. How many times have you read something in the last year in which a church leader has fallen for one of these three reasons? Uh, this is not uncommon. So if you know that, I knew that. So I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to leave this church, and we're not going to have a pension. I have an income from my, my police work. Uh, we're not going to take any income from the church. So we're going to take the money issue out. If you're not willing to do it for free, I'm not going to do it because I'm taking the money issue out. Not everyone has to do that, but I wanted to be extreme about it. I knew the three areas that people fall. So I took the money issue out. I'm not going to do anything without Susie attached at my hip. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this together. We're going to co-pastor, co-lead this church. Okay, great. That takes the second piece out. Third is we're never going to have a church of over fifty fifty people. We're going to have. We're not going to have a bigger building. We're not trying to make this bigger. We're not. This is it. So, so it's, if you think that you're going to get, you know, it's not about fame and power when you've got a small. That our church is about the size of an extended family. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, we've limited the power side. If you can limit, I, I knew those are the three ways that we could stumble. So, you just limit those three things in yeah. advance. And you doesn't mean you're still not going to stumble. You might. Right. But at least you got a better chance.
0: So good. Jay Werner Wallace, thank you so much for uh, once again being on the show. It's always great to have you.
2: Thanks for having me. Yep. I appreciate it. We'll you. take a short break and be
0: right back. podcasts like mine are available because of your support if it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith click the link in the show notes to give now